Well, it's a great joy and privilege tonight to be joined by Professor John Lennox. John is the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. Um, he is well known for, for many things, including debating some of the world's leading atheists, uh, people like Richard Dawkins um, and the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, he's also a proficient Bible teacher who's uh, taught the Bible in uh, different contexts all over the world. Um, and uh, it is an absolute joy and uh, delight uh, to be joined, uh, to have him join us this evening. So, John, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks so much. John, for those of us, um, for those who don't know you, just give us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you initially come to, to a Christian faith? Well, I grew up in Northern Ireland, as my accent will tell you very rapidly. And my parents were credible Christians in the sense that they lived Christianity. And my first experience of it was seeing how real it was in their lives. They were quite unusual because Northern Ireland in those days was beginning to descend into terrorist violence and sectarian violence. And my parents, though Christian were not sectarian and showed that in the fact that my father tried as best he could to employ people from both sides, Catholic and Protestant, in his store. And I once asked him why he did that, and he said, because it was very risky, he said, because I really do believe that every man and woman, no matter what they believe, is of infinite value made in the image of God, and so we must respect them all. And that has lived with me all my life. The second thing is, although they were keen believers in Christ, they loved me enough to give me space to think and come to my own decisions. And that was massively important in a country that, alas, has got a certain reputation for bigotry. And so I felt... Uh, at the early stages, uh, and I was very young, of course, in my early teens, Christianity was something that opened the mind, that didn't close the mind. My parents uh, encouraged very wide reading and even told me that I need to consider alternative worldviews so that I could orientate myself in uh, the world as it was and in the culture. And I then went to England, to Cambridge, to uh, study there. And on day one, I met the woman who's been my wife for over 50 years. And then all the rest is of secondary importance. <laughs> A number of degrees uh, in mathematics uh, and so on. But when I got to university, the key thing was simply this, that I believe Christianity was true, but I needed to test that against pressure because Ireland was reputed to be a Christian country in some vague sense. And very early on, I was challenged by a student uh, who just told me that my Christianity was a result of Irish genetics. And so I decided that I would befriend people that did not share my worldview. I've, do, I've been doing it ever since. And it's that that has led me to get involved in increasingly in the public uh, confirmation and intellectual defense of Christianity around the world. 
So that, in short, is a kind of vague description of what I've been up to. Fantastic. It's a great reminder, isn't it, that actually the, our faith can be stronger and more confident because we allow it to be critiqued and we open ourselves up for questioning rather than simply closing our minds off. Well, that's crucial. Uh, Christ does not believe in a closed mind. He believes in an open one. And that's what you'd expect. He claimed to be the truth, which is an incredible thing to think about. If he just said, I say the truth, that would have been correct, of course. But to say, I am the truth is a huge challenge into our secular society that if we really want to get to know the truth, then we need to get to know him. Absolutely. We're going to come on to your book in a a minute, John, and talk more about the current situation we find ourselves in and thinking about the question of God in the midst of a coronavirus world. But before we do that, you mentioned you got to Cambridge and it was at that place particularly that your faith got tested and you were willing to be open yourself up, as it were, to to have that um, that world be scrutinised. Um, tell us about one of the incidents that happened. It was it was really put to the test, wasn't it, by some of the faculty members um, early on in your time at Cambridge? There wasn't just a faculty member. It was a Nobel Prize winner, the first one I'd ever met. And it was a turning point in a sense. Uh, it was at a dinner in my college and I found myself placed beside this brilliant man whom I'd never met before. Indeed, I'd never met a Nobel Prize winner before. So characteristically, I like to play Socrates with anybody because it's always safer to ask questions and answer them. So I engaged in conversation and I think I said something vaguely like, did your Nobel Prize winning research ever make you think that there might be a God behind it all? Now, that question was not welcome. (laughs) And I backed off and thought that was the end of it. But at the end of the meal, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And it was a command rather than an invitation. So I went to his room and he'd invited several other professors, leading academics. And so far as I recall, it's a long time ago, he sat me down and they stood around me. And he said, do you want a career in science? And I said, yes, sir. He said, then what you have to do in front of witnesses tonight is give up this naive faith in God, because if you carry on with it, it will cripple you intellectually. You'll come off worse uh, against your peers. You'll never make it. So it was devastating, of course. And I thought later that if he'd been, a Christian, and I'd been an atheist, he'd have lost his job probably the the next day. Mm. And I looked at him and I remember summoning enough courage to say, tell me, what have you got to offer me that is better than what I already have? And he came out with the evolutionary philosophy of Emile Bergson. Don't worry if you've never heard of it. Fortunately, I had because I read C.S. Lewis. And I just quietly said, well, if that's all you've got, then I'll take the risk. I'll stick with what I've got. And I walked out. And that incident put steel into my heart. And I resolved on that day that if ever I was in a position to speak to young people from an academic situation, the kind I'm now in, the last thing I would do 
is to try to browbeat them into any worldview. And it's been such a joy over the years to get into the public stage and to attempt as best I can to present credible evidence for Christianity and have enough respect for other people to allow them to make up their own minds. And I think that attitude is enormously important. So that was the incident. And I don't think I have ever been put under such pressure since, even though I have chatted to a number of Nobel Prize winners. I'll tell you one other little story that I don't often relate. But it wasn't so long ago that I found myself addressing a group of people very prestigious group of physicists, mathematicians, and one of them was a Nobel Prize winner. Mm. And I talked about what convinced me as a scientist that there was a God. And at the end, the Nobel Prize winner stood up and in a loud voice, he said, why have I never heard this before? (laughs) It was electrifying. And he said, have you written about this? And he grabbed a piece of paper and he said, come and sit down, write down the names of your books I did. And he called on everybody to stay sitting while he went out, had them Xeroxed and passed them round. So that was a very different experience of a Nobel laureate. Wow, that's a wonderful story. And leads us really on to your books. Um, You've written many books on different subjects. We're not going to talk about them all tonight. But uh, Jonathan's already mentioned uh, your latest little book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? And that's really what we want to kind of think about and reflect on um, together um, for a bit. Um, what motivated you to read it, for, to write it, firstly, John? Very simply, mathematics and statistics. When I heard about this breakout, I realized that this is going to be something that will grow at an exponential rate and it's going to frighten people silly. Mm. And I thought, why shouldn't I, since I can't go out anyway, why shouldn't I sit down and see if I can write something intelligible rapidly? And I worked from dawn to dusk for one week, sent it to the publishers on a Saturday evening, and it was being printed on a Wednesday morning. And it's now in over 20 languages all around the world. So I've been enormously encouraged that, you know, I don't, claim to have all the answers. I think this is a hugely difficult and complex thing. And often people want answers. Others want sympathy and a warm touch if only we were allowed to give it. But I thought Christianity has something to say into this. And therefore, I will try and articulate it as best I can. So that's the motivation, really. Well, thank you for, for writing it. And uh, I found it particularly helpful and given a number of copies away to, to others who have tea. Um, the beginning and the introduction, you talk about how um, in many ways this is nothing new that we're going through. Um, we can we hear words like unprecedented all the time. And I guess with globalization, the kind of situation we're in is slightly different. But in other ways, what you say is that the situation we find ourselves in is something that has happened through history. And it's actually helpful to take a bigger view of things. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think it is helpful to take a bigger view because although we have never experienced anything quite like this, um, in very early days, the plague of Justinian in the 6th century and then there was the Black Death in the Middle Ages and so on, they wiped out multi-millions. In fact, the Black Death may have wiped out 
half of Europe at the time. And looking back, we can realize that in those situations, there was a remarkable advance of the Christian faith, which I think adds to its credibility. One of the pagan emperors saw to his utter amazement that Christians not only looked after their own people, as he would expect, but they looked after the pagans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this current phase where we see doctors and nurses and medical staff risking their own lives, absolutely amazingly, we should realize uh, as Christians that hospices and hospitals are part of the Christian legacy that is left to us from those days. So I think it's good to get a sense of proportion. We thought, of course, that it would never happen again and it would never happen to us. And that raises all kinds of other issues that you may like to raise later. Mm, Absolutely. Well, we'll come on to that in a bit. I guess when we're presented with any crisis, like suffering on on a global level or on a personal level, I guess there's two ways that it can send us. It can send people to God. And it's interesting, just in The Guardian last Sunday, it said that uh, 25% of the British population have been to an online service since the lockdown began, which is, well, about five times more than normal uh, would go to a church building on a, a regular Sunday. So, so that might be one direction that people start praying more. There's some evidence that that's the case. But, but it can also go the other way, can't it, in terms of people saying, well, if there is a loving God, um, if there is an almighty God, why would he allow something like this? Surely he would be able to stop it. Um, how can you go on believing in God? Um, surely atheism is a better option. What would you say to people whose reaction to the current situation is something along those lines? It depends to a certain extent what their position is vis-a-vis the suffering. What I mean by that is there are sufferers that are going through it. And then there are those of us who watch the suffering and observe it. And we're in a very different psychological position. And it's often the observers that have the intellectual questions, whereas the sufferers need a tremendous lot of psychological and emotional support, as well as answers to the big questions. But when we come to this, it's important to realize that these issues appeared a long time ago in the New Testament. And It's one of the reasons I believe the New Testament to be true and reliable in that it doesn't trivialize these questions. What I mean by that is that we've all argued, especially when we were younger, surely a good and loving God uh, would do something about this. So if he doesn't do anything about it, then he either isn't good or he hasn't got the power to do it. And there's a famous story In John 11, one of the signs that Jesus uh, demonstrated who he was, where there was a nuclear family and one of them, Lazarus, was desperately ill. And uh, Jesus was a friend of the families and the sisters, Martha and Mary, sent a message and said, Lord, the one you love is ill. He was miles away at the time. And of course, they expected him to come. But he didn't come. He let the man die. Now, let's just step back and realize what's going on here, because this is the current situation. People are dying. And if there is a God, 
then ultimately he lets people die. And he'll do that for all of us at some time or other. Jesus eventually turned up and Martha met him first and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. The interesting thing is she believed he had the power to prevent death. But he distanced himself. Here's God's social distancing, so to speak. And the problem was his distance. Now, that speaks right into the current situation. Has God gone into lockdown? Is he quarantined or does he simply not exist? And the interesting thing there is that Jesus looked her straight in the eye and said, your brother will rise again, which is an amazing promise that for those in Christ, relationship transcends death, even with COVID-19. And she said, yes, I know he'll rise again at the last day. And they started a, a high powered discussion about resurrection. Her brother had only been dead four days, and yet she was up for it. But her sister was still at home. And she remembered her sister and called her. And Mary came, said exactly the same thing to Jesus. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she burst out crying. And instead of entering into a discussion with her, Jesus wept as well. Mm. Now, I take that extremely seriously. These were not crocodile tears. And yet here was God incarnate who ultimately was responsible for the world in which this kind of thing happened. Uh, And that's a huge thing to try to take on board. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to her by the only way of communication that she understood, which was weeping. Mm -hmm. And I just say that we need to do that. There's some people we need to weep with today rather than enter into great arguments. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, What he did was he spoke in a very loud voice and called Lazarus out of the grave. Now, this is what transforms everything, even COVID-19. There's a mystery about this. The one hand, he allowed the man to die, but then he raised him from the dead as a kind of foreshadowing of what he would do on the large scale for anybody who trusted him. He said, that anyone, including you and me, that believes on him, though we die, yet shall we live. There is to be a resurrection which he will operate. So the overarching hope beyond the mysteries of what's going on is that we, if we trust Christ, can participate in that resurrection. Now, can you give me a moment to try and answer the underlying question? Because the underlying question is, look, couldn't God have made a world in which this kind of thing did not happen? I was in New Zealand just after the earthquake, and that was the question. Couldn't God have made a world without tectonic plates? My response to that was, yes, but you wouldn't be in it. (laughs) And they wondered why, because they didn't realize that the movement of tectonic plates, which causes earthquakes, is essential for life. Would you want to be in a world without viruses? Well, again, you wouldn't be in it. You're wishing yourself out of existence because most viruses are beneficial and we need them for life. So here's this complexity of a world we live in. And here's how I face it. We can never solve, at least I can't, the philosophical problem. Surely a good God would or could have done this. 
And when a mathematician like me fails to find an answer to a question over many years, he begins to think or she that maybe we're asking the wrong question. And here's what I think. And I'd like you, the listener, to really think about this question. And it is this. Granted that we face a mixed picture, all of us, whether we believe in God or not, we face what I call beauty. I went out and looked through my telescope at the Orion Nebula the other night. Spectacular. I then come in, television news, intensive care unit, people coughing and dying all around me. And if you like, our world is beauty and coronavirus, beauty and barbed wire, beauty and bombs. That's the picture. And any worldview, religion, philosophy that doesn't take that seriously isn't worth thinking about. Here's my question now. Granted that it's like that, is there any evidence anywhere that there is a God that we could trust with that? Now, that, to my mind, is a huge question to face people with. Is there anywhere any evidence? And I believe there is. It is in the incarnation of God in in Jesus, in his resurrection, but in his death before that, Hmm. that he is the one who can sort out the depths of the problem. Because, you see, suppose I asked myself the question, where is God in a coronavirus world? I'm tempted to say, where was he in the world before the coronavirus for me? Was I looking for him? Or was I ignoring him? And he's in exactly the same place in a coronavirus world that he was before. That is in Christ. He's far nearer to us than we think. And he's offering us a message that doesn't solve this problem trivially, but gives us huge hope and gives us grounds for embarking on a new life. Because the promise is that if we are prepared to trust him with this stuff, then because he took the weight of our guilt on the cross, we can have peace with God because of what he did. We can have forgiveness. We can have a new life that starts now and we don't have to wait for any judgment. And therefore life can be utterly transformed. And his resurrection gives us the certainty that we've got something that even COVID-19, yes, even if it kills me, cannot destroy. Mm. Now, there's a huge backstory to this. And the short version of it is that the Bible traces the origin of this to a mixture of things. Moral evil is connected with natural evil. Now, if you want me to go into that, I will. I've gone into it in my book. Um, maybe it'd be helpful just to spell that, because I guess for some people, when they think about suffering, it's, it's easy to account for what we might call moral evil. Yes, it is. Responsible. It's harder when we see suffering that is indirectly linked to any human actions. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you about another incident in the life of Christ on the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. He was once informed 
by the crowd that at that very place, Pilate had massacred a group of worshippers. That's moral evil. Mm -hmm. But then he added that the Tower of Siloam had fallen and killed 18 people. That's what we call natural evil, which is a bit of a misnomer, although moral and natural evil are often closer than we think, also in COVID. Mm -hmm. But leaving that aside, Jesus faced them with this. He said, do you think these people were worse than anybody else? Now, this is hugely important because we get religious people today sometimes saying, well, there you are. This is the judgment of God. That's a very risky stance. They think sometimes of the plagues in the Bible and say, there you are. But we've got God's word for the plagues in the Bible. So far as I know, we don't have a specific word from God for COVID-19. But secondly, the lesson that Jesus read from that massacre and the fall of the tower, although they were small scale, the principle is identical, was do not think when you see a tragedy that the people who are victims of it are necessarily worse than anybody else. That's enormously important today for the peace of mind of, of many people. But then he read the lesson. He didn't finish there. He said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he didn't mean that you've got a choice. You'll either be massacred or a tower will fall on you. But what he meant, I think, is this. As C.S. Lewis put it, these kinds of things act as a megaphone to wake us up. And that's a side effect. I'm not saying they have a silver lining. We need to be careful with that kind of language. But what I am saying is, and it's true, the churches are filling up. Why are they filling up? Well, because people have suddenly realized that they're mortal, that they're vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that they're not in control. And I would hope many people in Europe are realizing that, We've written God out of its constitution. We've neglected him for centuries, increasingly in recent days. And things like this on the scale they happen raise big questions about mortality, vulnerability, and inevitably the God question, what's going to happen to me after death? And Jesus called people in light of it to repent. Because I may not be a mass murderer, but most of us have made a mess of our own lives or somebody else's life at some stage. And we haven't even kept our own standards, let alone God's. And the whole purpose is to turn us to God. Now, what I've noticed, Michael, is if people come on with the high ground, moralistic, judgmental, this is God judging this nation or that. That doesn't turn people to God. It turns people on those who say such things. And they say, who do you think you are? Arrogating to yourself, uh, understanding of what God is doing. And they're not interested in God as a result of that. We don't go there. What we want to do, I think, is follow Christ's example. And I'm grateful that that incident is written there because it helps orientate us into this situation and it piles up evidence that we can trust him with it because he suffered too. He hasn't remained distant from suffering, but rather on the cross, the very least we can say is that he became part of it. And so taking his claim to be God, we need to investigate that more carefully. 
Yeah, that's so helpful, John. There's so much there. But uh, I think it's one of the things I find so appealing about the Christian faith in the way that it doesn't necessarily give us exhaustive answers. No. But it does give us sufficient answers to be able to make sense of our experience of life. We talk about the beauty and the brokenness. And in the yes. midst of that, a God who has experienced it, understands it, but has also done something about the, the problem at the heart of it, um, which is so helpful. Just picking up on what you said earlier, you talked about the hope that... Um, the Christian faith gives the ultimate hope, ultimately, that says, well, even if I was to die of COVID-19, I know that my destiny is secure. I know where I'm headed. And those words of Jesus in, in John 11, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he will live. I guess there's a couple of reactions that people might have to that. One of those reactions might be to say, isn't that just kind of wishful thinking? It's a nice idea. Um, I guess the second reaction might be to say, well, that's maybe in the future, but how does that change my life now before death as well? Do you mind if we take those two? before? Not, we... not at all, because I think they are important and they are, they're valid reactions. Absolutely, they're valid reactions. Um, my question here is simply, is it true? Because if Christianity is true, then it's very sensible to prepare for the future. But we should read that back into the present. You see, the early Christians who were faced by plagues believed this stuff. And instead of it leading to them removing themselves, it led to their activity. Mm. And it's very interesting. Often my atheistic colleagues in the university who are in the medical profession will say to me, how is it that whenever we go to some remote tribe on earth, the people that are helping them with medicine and doing research to find uh, cheap drugs for them are always Christians. Now, I remember several people saying that so that a proper understanding of these things should lead to action and commitment into the present and getting on with it. Now, the first part of your question said, is it wishful thinking? None of it's true. It's wishful thinking to duck your head and avoid thinking about God if God is real. And so we have to face (laughs) that question very clearly. Now, when I was originally challenged uh, that my belief in God was simply a product of Irish genetics, that's the old Freudian argument. You just want there to be a comforting God up in the sky. But that doesn't face the truth question and people's atheism can be just as much wishful thinking than people's faith in God or fairies or leprechauns or anything else and so the truth question is crucial but the truth question it's helpful to face the truth question by asking well asking how what truth means and truth usually means that it corresponds to reality is this helping me to deal with reality and is it consistent with my experience and what i've learned and that's why i encourage people especially if they've never done it before to get into uh, both reading the new testament and that lovely gospel that was read to us john or Also reading other people's experience, as in the book that was recommended to you by um, by Jonathan. So 
I'm not impressed by either of those objections, but I understand them. They are actually escapist routes and they're not taking the whole business seriously. Yeah. I found um, in answer to the first problem, the um, Rodney Stark's little book, The Rise of Christianity, so helpful because as a social historian, he just shows the difference that the Christian faith made in those early centuries. Um, yeah, that it, legacy is, ext- I mean, we've every reason to be proud of that legacy. And books like Rodney Stark and other people have really brought to the contemporary mind just how rich that legacy is. Here I am, a scientist, and modern science is a legacy of Christianity without any question. Absolutely. So you say this is not wishful thinking. In many ways, atheism can be wishful thinking. We could turn it around that way. And as you hinted well, it on is if it's if yeah. it's false. Absolutely. You hinted earlier the Christian faith not just being built on the the crucifixion of Jesus, but the resurrection of Christ too. And of course, that's the grounds of Christian hope. The early Christians were quite willing to say, if this didn't happen, the whole thing falls down like a pack of cards. It just um, falls away. There's an incident. We're coming towards an end. In your first debate with Richard Dawkins, it really kind of um, it was fascinating at the end of your debates where you mentioned the resurrection and Richard responded um, in a very mocking way, didn't he? But that led to a conversation that you had with him that was recorded afterwards. Just tell us about that, because I found it so helpful to listen to because it demonstrates that so often our rejection of the Christian faith isn't based necessarily on an investigation into the evidence, but just superficial, you know, um, rejections that haven't even looked into it ourselves well that was a very strange and very sad outburst Mm. Uh, the genesis of it was we were told that the debate was about to end and instead of nine minutes for each of us to sum up with two minutes and so i decided to go for the central thing the resurrection and his reaction was we've been having a great intellectual discussion now we come down to something so petty trivial etc the resurrection of jesus which has had a huge effect as people have watched this around the world because if jesus rose from the dead then it's not petty at all it's it's the fundamental doorway into understanding that death is not the end or that there's hope beyond the grave. Now, I can't quite remember exactly what conversation you are referring to. So can you enlighten me? Well, that's funny. Um, It led to a, I think it wasn't filmed, but it was a kind of a recorded discussion where the two of you sat down and just, I think most of it was looking at the, you kind of outlined the evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And um, Richard Dawkins' response to that was, was almost surprised that he had never actually encountered a reasoned explanation of, of some of the, the historical facts. I remember what it was, and it was an interesting thing, but it's so long ago that I wouldn't be able to spell out his reaction. But what it was, was a, an audio recording that I believe was broadcast, but I tried to find it recently. Some people were looking for it and we haven't found it yet where we discussed the whole question of miracle and the supernatural from the perspective of science. And it was one of the most useful conversations I had with him uh, of all the the things that we were involved in together. But I'd need to get it, Michael, and listen well, to it again. I, if I, you I, can I, find I, it, I'd be very happy. 
I'll send it through. But I found it very helpful. I think it just, um, as we kind of come to an end of this part of the evening, just helpfully reminds us that actually the Christian faith is built on something solid and historical. And so. Oh, yes. That is crucial. Christ demands evidence based faith. Mm. There is such a wave of misunderstanding in our culture. People led by Dawkins, you see, think that faith is a religious word and it means believing where there's no evidence. That's doubly and dangerously wrong. Faith is an ordinary word that comes from the Latin fides, which means trust. And if we've any sense, we don't trust anything or anybody without some evidence. You know why you trust your friends. You know why you trust no newspaper. So perhaps I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> you know that if you go to the bank for a mortgage, the bank manager will need strong evidence to trust you with it. And this is a part of every day life. And it's because Christianity is evidence based. The Gospel of John, again, is a book of signs. It's various incidents which are out there. And John says of them, and here's the purpose for which he wrote his gospel, Many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, here's the evidence upon which faith can be based. Faith that Christ asks for is evidence based. Thank you so much. And we'll tell you at the end, if you want to get a copy of the gospel, in fact, the whole New Testament, we'd love to get a copy to you. And uh, we will um, uh, be uh, letting you know how you can do that. We're going to hand over now to Martin. As I said, Martin is one of my colleagues in the Association of Evangelists. He's going to help us to continue to think about this a little bit more. Over to you, Martin. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Michael. And uh, thanks very much, John. Um, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a, a little presentation with you as I as I speak but it's a really kind of uh, fascinating kind of stuff that Michael and John have been talking about they've been talking about Jesus they've been talking that about the fact that he's evidence-based and what I want to do is go to some of that evidence tonight I want us to look at a bit of John's gospel who and John was a, an eyewitness of Jesus a really good friend of him and he wrote down loads of brilliant stuff for us in in the bible in, in his book called John's gospel and what I want to do is I want us to get us to think a bit about, to start with, fragrant flashbacks. That's right, fragrant flashbacks. And you think, what's that? Well, it's when you get a waft of something and it's it comes across and it tr takes you back in time. It takes you down memory lane. And I don't know whether you have experienced that kind of thing. You suddenly get the smell and you go, yeah, I remember that. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a latte and a latte made with Austrian um Austrian goat's milk or something and it takes you back to your first artisan copy that you sampled at McDonald's um, maybe you get a, a waft of fish and chips and it just reminds you of that brilliant holiday you once had as a kid with your family at the seaside maybe when you um walk down the street at the moment and all of a sudden uh, you get a, a waft of, of old spice and you realize that someone's been marinating themselves in it. Uh, it. It takes you back to your history teacher. Maybe um, like me, when I was at school, I, whenever I smell now the, the smell of Lynx deodorant, it takes me back to year 10, year 11, where all of us lads didn't quite compute 
they're just spraying a bunch of Lynx Tempest or Lynx Africa over your body wasn't going to curb your VO problems and it made for a very unholy alliance. Anyway, fragrances give us flashbacks and I'm sure Peter himself, who was in the story that Hannah read to us earlier, would have got a, a flashback, a fragrant flashback in the story we had read because he was at a charcoal fire and this charcoal fire would have given him the reminder about something very important. Let me explain what it is. You see, in the story, it happens in John chapter 21. And, and John's gospel has been showing us brilliantly all about how Jesus is God, the son in in the flesh. God become human. And, and Jesus has shown himself to be that through his teaching and through the things he says, through the things he does. He then predicts that he will die. And, and he does that. He predicted we're crucified. And then he also predicts that on the third day after his death and burial, he will rise again. He will resurrect. He will come back um, from the dead. And, and Jesus does all that. And then he starts to make all of these guest appearances in different settings to different people. But he's already appeared to his disciples twice. And on the occasion of the story that I'm going to talk about, this is now the third time that he has appeared to his disciples. And they're back up in, in the north of Israel, they're back, back by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter and some of his chums have decided to go out fishing again, as was some of their trades. And they're out there in the sea. They've been out there all night and they've, they've caught absolutely nothing. Not even a, a little pilchard, a Glenric pilchard or a, or a little sardine in tomato sauce. Absolutely nothing. And you can imagine all the kind of fish jokes that have been going around. Oh, I've had enough of this. Oh, this is clearly neither the time nor the place. It's the wrong opportunity. And as you hear those, you probably want to batter me. Um, but they're, they're hearing all these jokes and, and, and they're just fed up. And all of a sudden they look across and they, they see this figure on the shore and this figure shouts out to them. Hey, guys, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they think, well, we've got nothing to lose. And so what they do, they, they throw the net in this empty net. And uh, John will love this because he's a mathematician. Uh, they count eventually how many fish are in this net. One hundred and fifty three whopping fish then fill this net. And Peter thinks to himself, hang on. Who is this on the shore who can bring about this great catch? It's got to be the person who's just risen from the dead and, and just beat the living daylights out of death. That's who this is. And, and he decides to jump into the water, swims 100 metres to shore. And he comes across then this charcoal fire where Jesus is. And as he smells the charcoal fire, as that fragrant just um, fragrance goes up his nostrils, it will take him back in a flashback moment to a situation probably only a week or so beforehand. And the situation was this. You see, it would have brought Peter's memory back to a time where back in John chapter 13, Peter had said to Jesus, do you know what, Jesus, I I can I can do this. I will do anything for you. I will even die for you. I will go the whole mile for you. Um, you can rely on me. I'm a good bloke. I'm, I'm a strong character. I will definitely um, be with you no matter what. And, and Peter was very much in this place of self-reliance and self-trust and, and self-belief. And yet he found himself on the nights that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, also betraying Jesus. You see, Peter was um, by a fire, fire, a charcoal fire. And Jesus had just been arrested. And uh, Peter, as he warmed himself by this fire, was asked and bombarded with questions from different people. And they were asking him, you, you're a northerner. 
are you you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? You're one of his friends. And and Peter denies it. He says, no, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not. Absolutely no. And three times he, he blatantly denies that he, he knew Jesus. And as the smell of that, that fire would have risen up his nostrils, we're told then all of a sudden he he sees Jesus across the courtyard. Their eyes meet. And, and as their eyes meet, Peter, we're told, is, is, is a broken man. He, he starts to get up and he, and he weeps bitterly because he has betrayed um, Jesus. And he begins to see he's a failure. I don't, I don't know if you've ever eaten a gluten free biscuit before, but Peter is the quintessential gluten free biscuit because like every gluten free biscuit, he just crumbled. He relied on himself thinking, I've got it. I've got the power. I can trust me. I've got the strength. I'm a good man. I'm a good guy. And yet, like, like a gluten free biscuit, he just crumbled under pressure. His pride in himself, his belief in himself melted away. And he was a broken man. He was racked with guilt because it wasn't an accident that he had betrayed Jesus. This is something he did three times. It was an intentional, willful thing. So he, he was racked with guilt because of what he had done. And he was full of shame because he he just realised I'm not the person I thought I was. I thought I was better than this. I thought I was uh, I thought I was a good guy. How on earth could I just be this kind of person who just betrays Jesus? You see, Peter realised that Jesus isn't just an ordinary bloke. This is this is this Jesus, this human figure in, in, in history 2000 years ago that Peter was encountering is actually God in the flesh. And so Peter realised his betrayal is not just against another person as, as bad as that is, another human being, but it's also against the God of this universe, the rightful king of this universe. And he was devastated that he had betrayed Jesus. And I wonder, as you hear that that kind of story of Peter's failure, whether that brings to your mind times where where you failed in your life. Thinking um, about the lockdown at the moment, I, I wonder whether you've been a bit like Peter beforehand, thinking I've got this together. I'm a good person. I'm a strong character. And then the lockdown, like the fire for Peter, has ripped the lid off your heart and has exposed really what is going on deep down inside you i wonder if you thought before the lockdown do you know what i'm a i'm a really kind of patient guy or patient girl and and uh, and then actually during lockdown you discovered you're you're the height of impatience you just you just so easily um lose the plot i don't know if you thought that before lockdown you're a measured person who is good with their their words and only uses them in appropriate ways and then during lockdown you suddenly see you're unleashing the verbal flamethrowers um, every every few seconds, every few minutes or something. Maybe you thought to yourself, you know, before I'm an honest person. And yet during lockdown, every time something goes wrong or you feel bad, you unleash and blame other people for for the ways that you're feeling. And the Bible says, you see, that those kind of betrayals against those that we love, they're, they're there because ultimately we betray the one that we should love as first and foremost in our lives the the lord the jesus and and the bible says that every time we betray someone else we're ultimately betraying god because everyone's created in in god's image and so i wonder if you start to sense and see during this time that actually it's not just peter but all of us who have have failed and our lives start to stink a bit like a a bit like a kipper gone a bit wrong well Here's my question then. How how does Jesus respond? And, and it's important to ask, well, how does Jesus respond? Because he's shown himself for the resurrection of the dead to be 
to be God in the flesh, to be the king of the universe, uh, to be the one who owns everything in this in this universe as such. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Um, and the answer in, the, in what we saw in the story is that Jesus prepares a fire. And you think to yourself, hang on, Jesus, do you not know anything about fragrant flashbacks? That's going to cause a lot of pain. It's going to trigger poor old Peter. That's going to bring back all that guilt and, and shame. Is Jesus just trying to rub Peter's nose in all of his mud and mire? Is that is that what he's trying to do? Is Jesus being harsh as he lights this fire for this dripping wet Peter? How does Jesus react? You could say he's got every right to get a trout and just whack Peter on the snout. You could say he's got every right to do that to us as well for the ways that we've betrayed others and and betrayed um, God. But that's not what Jesus does in in the story. This is what happens. We're told there that that Jesus lights a fire. And, And let me explain to you two things that that means for us as we wrap up now. Two things. Firstly, the fire means forgiveness. You see, Jesus is here and he's lit this fire for Peter because he wants Peter to to face the truth about himself squarely. He doesn't want him to run away and start to sweep things under the carpet and hide away. But no, he wants Peter to 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 be honest about his failings. And that's why that fire is there. It's reminding Peter of what what he's done. But Jesus isn't trying to rub salt into the wound. He's not trying to put smoke in Peter's eyes. Now, what he's doing is he's saying, Peter, I want you to to know um, what, what you've done so that you come to this place of going. Yeah, I just need I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness for for the ways that I've betrayed um, Jesus and the ways that I've betrayed others in my life. And Jesus, by lighting this fire, is saying, Peter, do you know what? There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for no matter what you have done in me because of what I have done for you. There's a there's a great verse that was prophesied, predicted 700 years um, before Jesus's death and resurrection in the book called Isaiah in the Old Testament, the chunky first start of the Bible. And in that um, chapter, in chapter 53, Isaiah writes, but he speaking about Jesus, but Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. And you know what a transgression is? It's it's a betrayal. It's a breach of trust. And Jesus is here with Peter saying, look, Jesus, for all of your transgressions, not just the ones you did a week ago, but for, the, for your whole life of them, for the ways you betrayed others and and God, for all of those things, I was pierced for you. I was nailed to a cross for you. I died for that. And as Peter is there, wracked with his guilt and shame, says, but what about what about this? And what about that? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's why I died, Peter. I died for that. I died for every single one of your sins. And that's what he says for each one of us as well. The Jesus who did no nothing wrong, committed no transgressions, betrayed absolutely no one, but in fact was the trustworthy one. What did he do? Where Jesus said, I am going to die for you and take the judgment, the fire of what you deserve um, so that you don't have to bear that for yourself. That's what the fire firstly means. And that's what he's saying to Peter. As the king of the universe, I'm giving up my life for you because I love you. That's number one. Number two, um, what else does the fire mean? Well, the fire not only means forgiveness, but it also means feasting. And, and I absolutely love what Jesus says to Peter and to the other disciples who rock up on the shore as well. He says this. He says, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. And that's a, that's a brilliant thing, because this isn't just, you know, 
Dave down the road inviting us out for for a McDonald's um on a egg and bacon McMuffin or whatever they are. And um, this isn't a sausage McMuffin. It's not just some bloke down the road inviting us for breakfast. But this is the king of the universe who has just smashed death, beaten it by resurrecting from the dead and paid for all of humanity's sins. This is the person, the king of the universe, who has done all that. This is the one who's inviting you to breakfast. It's not a bargain bucket from the colonel. This is the king of the universe offering you a feast. And what is a feast all about? It's all about where you can come and enjoy life. You can come and enjoy the one who made you. You can come and enjoy and have that freedom to know that you're forgiven. And so that you can live life flourishing once again in the here and now and on on and and on into eternity as well. You know, the sad thing that Jesus talks about in a lot of his stories is that is that for many people, they don't come to him with their guilt and their shame because of what they've done. They don't come to him with that and they don't ask and seek his forgiveness. And so Jesus talks about how for many they end up then being outside of that meal, outside of that feast, because they don't accept the invitation that is theirs for the taking. You see, Jesus wants each and every one of you to come to him and come and be forgiven so that you can feast with him, so that you can thrive in in a world that's full of difficulties with the king of all kings, the king who gave his life up for you because he loved you so. As we conclude here, um, what I, what I find great about the story as well, which again, true story that happened 2000 years ago, is is that Jesus, when he's on that shore and he sees all the fishermen, Peter and, and, and such struggling, when he sees them with an empty net, when he sees Peter, who's actually out there, starkers at the time, we're told, naked, which is not a nice sight. But it's a picture in the Bible of being full of shame. When he sees Peter full of shame and his net and net and life empty, what does Jesus do? He doesn't shout on the shore, Peter, get your act together, sort your life out, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. That that will get you sorted. No, he doesn't he doesn't start telling him all the mantras that we get told. Because Peter knows he's not enough. He cannot bear the weight of his life. Peter knows that he cannot sort his own life out. He can't get his act, own act together. I wonder if you notice that as well in, in your life. But Jesus doesn't shout that out. He shouts out this through his invitation to come and have breakfast. Not come and get your act together, but drop the act and come and be together with me. Come to me. Come and have me as your king. Come and have me as the one who's at the centre of your life now, who leads your life on. And you can trust me because I died and I rose for you. I'm just going to um, end end now by, by by praying and I wonder whether any of you out there today uh, um, not out there in the universe but yeah anyone out there on YouTube or Zoom or whatever is listening and you're thinking yeah I realize the guilt and shame I have because of my betrayal of God and, and others and I need forgiveness and I want to come and have Jesus as my king I want to feast of him if that's you then why not pray with me now I'm going to do a short prayer before I hand back over to to Michael and the others Let's pray. If you want to receive Jesus, feel free to echo these words in the quietness of your own heart and mind, or even out loud in your room right now. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to say sorry for the ways that I've betrayed you and betrayed others in my life. Father, thank you so much that you gave Jesus your son to die and to rise for me. Thank you that he took all of my 
wrongdoing, all of my transgressions, all of my betrayals on himself and paid for it all. Thank you that he rose from the dead and he has life to give. Father, please forgive me now. And I now gladly receive Jesus' invitation to receive that forgiveness and that feast of thriving in a right relationship with him as my king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Martin, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's so helpful. What a beautiful invitation that we have from Jesus to come and have breakfast, to come into a relationship, to drop the mask and to know his forgiveness and his fellowship. So we would love to help you if you pray tonight or maybe that's something you're seriously considering. We'd love to send you a booklet that just explains how you can start this relationship with Christ and and really begin uh, that wonderful adventure. And we just ask you just drop an email. Uh, the email address there is on the screen, zoom at aofe.org.uk, um, and we'd love to send one to you. So just send us your uh, postal address. Uh, we'll get one in the post tomorrow or, or next week. And um, if you're saying, like, I'd really like to take John's advice from earlier and start reading one of those gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, we'd love to send you uh, a New Testament part of the Bible uh, that includes all of the four gospels. And again, if you just drop your postal address um, to the email address, We'll get in touch with you and we'll send one to you. That would be um, a joy and a privilege uh, to be able to do that for you. We just want to thank John. Thank you so much for, for coming and being with us tonight and for sharing. We really appreciate your time. A number of places around the world, actually, over the last few weeks, the joys of Zoom enabling us to do that. But we really appreciate you taking the time out to be with us. Thank you, Martin, as well, for speaking to us and for helping us in that way. Uh, see the invitation that's presented to all of us. And thank you to all of you who've uh, been with us tonight, whether you've been with us in the Zoom room, whether you've been here on YouTube, whether you're watching this on a later date. So we appreciate that you've uh, been with us tonight and we hope that you found it helpful. I guess off the back of what you've heard, you may have different responses. You may still be sceptical. You may still say, well, I'm not convinced by this. And take the challenge of John to say, well, I need to look into it for myself then. I can't dismiss something I've not really investigated. Why not uh, send us an email and we'll send you a New Testament to start with one of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus and investigate some of the first century first-hand evidence for yourself. And that'd be a great place to start. Maybe you'd like to find out more. Well, we'd love to to send you through um, that book that we mentioned earlier. Again, drop us an email with your postal address explaining how the relationship with Christ that we've been speaking about tonight can make a real difference um, in other people's lives. It can make a difference in your life too. Uh, But also for those who are saying, actually, I really want to get started. I really want to discover um, this relationship that's on offer. I want to get to know the God who has shown himself to me in Christ and loves me enough to die for me and is alive again and is able to be in my life. We'd love to send you that booklet we mentioned. Again, drop us an email and we'll be in touch with you. But we just want to say thank you. Um, do be in touch if we can help you in any way. Uh, but it's been great to have you with us. Thanks again to John. Uh, thanks again to Martin and see you soon. And God bless.